Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chattuck. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen continues her series of discussions with Michael Trout with part one of their examination of his fifth video, Is There Anyone in There Adopting a Wounded Child? All of Michael Trout's videos and books are available at the TKC store at tkcchattock.org. Get a 20% discount on all Michael Trout materials when you type Trout20 at checkout. That's T-R-O-U-T and the number 20. Part 2 will be released on February 11th. This is Karen Buckwalter, and I am delighted to be having Michael Trout coming back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast for another series. This series will actually be about a variety of resources that he has produced. So I would like to share a bit about his background. Michael has degrees in both philosophy and psychology, and he was uh, trained with Selma Freiberg in infant psychiatry as part of the Child Development Project of the University of Michigan Department of Psychiatry. He's been in the infant mental health field since 1968 and in private practice since 1979. Since 1986, he has directed the Infant Parent Institute, which is an institute engaged in research, clinical practice, and clinical training related to problems of attachment. He was the founding president of both the Michigan and the International Associations of Infant Mental Health, was on the charter editorial board of the Infant Mental Health Journal, served as regional vice president for the United States for the World Association of Infant Mental Health, and served on the board of directors and as editor of the newsletter of the the Association for Pre- and Perinatal Psychology and Health. In 1984, Michael won the Selma Freiberg Award for significant contributions to needs of infants and their families. In addition to publishing a number of book chapters and journal articles, Michael Trout has produced 16 clinical training videos that are used by universities and clinics around the world, including a six-hour video training series called The Awakening and Growth of the Human, Studies in Infant Mental Health. He comes to us with a wealth of wisdom and experience, and Michael has become a good friend of mine as well as such a respected colleague and mentor. He's one of the most influential people in my professional life by far, and I'm just delighted to be opening a new series with him today. So here we go. Sought after speaker and trainer Karen Doyle Buckwalter and trauma-informed school specialist Josh Carlson are coming together for a one-day workshop you don't want to miss. May 1st in Denver, Colorado, Lessons from the Toughest Kids features practical, evidence-based strategies for working with challenging children and adolescents. You'll experience engaging lectures, discussions, and role play with proven strategies from over 25 years of working with some of the nation's most complex children. Go beyond theory and book knowledge with Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson May 1st in Denver, Colorado. Tickets are on sale now. Visit tkcchattock.org or find us on Facebook. Welcome back, everybody, to the Attachment Theory 
in Action podcast and our continuing series with Michael Trout. We've been walking through the years here, looking at the different um, videos that, that Michael has made, actually listening to them and talking about them. Um, and this brings us up to a video where the direction changed a bit. This video is called, Is There Anyone In There Adopting a Wounded Child? And this was the first video that was coming from a parent perspective. So you who have been listening to the series out there know that a big emphasis in the video is Michael bringing alive the experience of babies and toddlers and even prenates. So this was a real shift in direction for the series. This came along in 2004. So hello again, Michael, and thank you for being here. Great to be back. Yes. So let's, uh, I know uh, we were talking before the podcast uh, started. The first thing I was sharing was, it's kind of funny that every time I review the script for the next podcast, I decide that that particular video is my favorite video. This keeps happening every single time, and it happened again. Um, but something different about um, the accompanying booklet that comes with each video was that your introduction section in this video was much longer than some of the other ones. And so we want to talk through some of that and have you share some of what's in there and some of the points that you were trying to make. Yeah, this, this was a difficult one to wade into. Um, the, not only, as you say, the, the format is different, but the audience is very different, aimed really at the um, numerically small number of moms and dads across the country who took in a child that was really seriously injured before he ever came to them. And they are having an awful time. And so with, with them in mind, I, I tried to write something to them, kind of a, almost a letter to them, but instead of writing it from me, I wrote it as if a mother was simply in the experience of welcoming a child into her home and her heart for the very first time and being caught off guard. I, my heart had gone out for a number of years before I ever thought of this film to two groups of parents. One were uh, brand new foster or adoptive parents who many of whom had been through years of infertility sorrow and infertility treatment and decided let's adopt and then discovered that adopting a baby, an American healthy, beautiful, uh, ruddy-cheeked baby was either very expensive or very impossible or both. And so they opened themselves up wider and usually very naively to babies from other countries or babies from the child welfare system in this country who were unbeknownst to them uh, really, really wounded. Mm -hmm. And about those families, I knew a, a dirty secret in the child welfare system, which is from the point of view of child welfare workers, adoption and foster care workers was, if I tell parents what these certain kind of babies and toddlers are really like and what they really might be in for and for how many years, all the parents would disappear. So I just don't. And I let them figure it out. 
And those parents waded into my office anywhere from a few days to a few years later, um, usually with a particular look in their eye that I recognized before they even told me the story. Uh, they looked beat up, worn down, um, confused, intellectually turned inside out, but emotionally turned inside out too. Meaning they couldn't really figure this out intellectually. None of it made sense. They'd never heard of development like this and in, emotionally inside out because they'd just never been through anything like this. Nothing about life or other kids or being a good aunt to their niece or and nothing had prepared them for this. So there was that group. And then the second group that my heart was had really gone out to were very experienced foster and adoptive parents. Some of whom told me I've had 12 kids in my house and I've never even heard of a child who acted like this. And I mean, I've had some pretty behaviorally messed up kids, difficult to manage kids, but nothing like this. Nothing like this child that would be sitting in the kitchen when I came down in the dark in the middle uh, in the morning would be sitting there and staring at me with a, a look that said, I just assume you die as go ahead and get your coffee. Um, or a child who would say things to my husband or to my neighbors like this child says, I, I don't understand it. How can I be, how can I be this smart and this experienced and not get it? with these kids. And furthermore, none of my usual strategies for managing even really troubled kids are working with these kids. That's where the clinicians became kindred spirits with the parents. Yeah. Well, if they did, of course, some clinicians decided that'd be a, just a swell moment to look for pathology in the parents and hint that the parents were just not quite doing enough mm -hmm. because as we all knew if they just love them more or better it would all be fine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. sometimes clinicians did really nasty things to parents i suppose because the clinicians were themselves just not well informed and not very experienced with what these kids were really like so with those two sets of parents in mind I wanted to find some way to, to express empathy, first of all, for what they were in the middle of. And secondly, give at least a hint of what was coming next. And maybe with that, a hint of what they might want to be thinking about, uh, which then might lead to some management strategies or at least some ideas about what not to do. I mean, it's hard to tell a parent, forget about time out. Mm -hmm. Because time out is wonderful. Time out worked for all of our other kids, including our foster kids. So it's hard to tell them that. But if you can help them somehow feel the soul of a child like this uh, through the parent's own pain in encountering a child like this, then it will occur to the parent, maybe if you're lucky, gosh, about the last thing I'd want to do is isolate this child from me, 
even though, by the way, what I want to do is put him in a box somewhere and really isolate him. <laughs> that wouldn't be right. Right, right. So that was the point. Yes, and those those were your your two groups, and um, we've talked about we've touched on this in some of the other talks that we've had about the video series. But for listeners that weren't on those um, or heard those, I should say, um, you talk about this being at a select, <laughs> perhaps that's a bad use of words, a specific group of children, not all foster and adopted children, not all children even adopted out of orphanage care, although we would see a higher incidence. There's just so much controversy now out there about parents automatically going to assume, you know, my child has RAD and they have no conscience and they're dangerous and they're, um, there is, and I want to be careful how I want to say this because I don't want to be parent blaming, but at the same time, I think there's a, a chance of overimposing pathology on the children, thinking this is all children. And then um, as a result, being unable to look at perhaps your contribution to what is happening. Exactly, exactly right. And it's really a, uh, a dilemma because for some years, in the early years, particularly in the 80s, we used that brand new diagnostic category that wasn't even in the DSM yet for, for many years to help suggest that this was a unique category of parents, of children. So we used it and maybe we made the mistake of, maybe that was a mistake to use it because then when it got to be better known, exactly what you said began to happen, which is that not only were parents overusing it, that is applying it where it wasn't applicable, but they were beginning to, to even diminish the child, beginning to call certain children, my rad kid, you know, as if, oh my God, now all the parents will roll their eyes and, and, um, and think badly of that child. Yes. You um, bring up something very interesting here in the opening in terms of diagnosis that I want to mention that seems appropriate here, that uh, Marcy Axness, yes. if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, rather than reactive attachment disorder, she wanted to call this natural organismic response to massive abandonment and loss. Which handily turns into the acronym NORMAL. <laughs> yes, yes. And I loved her for doing that, uh, not only because it's clever, but because it forces us to take note that if any of us experience what these children have experienced, we might be there too. Yes. There's, and no, there's nothing developmentally weird about these children if you follow the course of their development. Michael, I was once in a workshop with Bruce Perry many years ago, and everyone was getting all caught up on diagnosis. Well, what if it's ADHD? Well, why isn't it oppositional defiant disorder? Well, it seems like we have, you know, uh, conduct disorder, even though we can't diagnose it that young. Like, you know, what do these kids have? Is it attachment disorder? And finally, they kept asking this and asking this, and finally he said, okay, 
no more diagnostic questions. They have, what do you expect? <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. And so we know since he's come up with um, his very useful uh, way of, of, of looking at, at diagnosis with the children, and it's not out of the DSM, but I just that was just so powerful to me at the time that they have, what do you expect? Like, really, people? Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid that um, in many circles, including our own, that is to say, work with attachment problems, but in many circles, uh, diagnoses are just way too popular and way too convenient and way too overused. But beyond the overuse, I find that I don't use them at all or virtually not at all because it's just too seductive. Once you start, you sort of forget to look at behavior anymore because you've already got the diagnosis. And what listeners will notice about this film is that while I use the term a lot in the prelude, in, in, the, in the preface to the film, I use it not one time in the film. I never mention RAD or any other diagnostic category in the film itself because I, I'm hoping that parents will join me in being curious about behavior and not focused on diagnosis. And I guess I want to add another reason you mentioned curiosity, uh, which is true. And I, I guess um, diagnosis stifles wondering. Absolutely does. And we, we, as you said, we have to stay curious and wondering. So, uh, yeah, so what else from, from this preface here, Michael, do you think that we want to make sure to mention to our listeners? Well, again, the preface is the part of this whole production where I use that diagnostic name and uh, where I try to explain how these children are uh, unique. I do that in the name of sidling up next to that small number of parents who have a child like this and sort of say to them, yeah, by the way, does he do this? Um, which turns out to make uh, parents who have lived with it feel un, how should I say, uh, in, an, uh, in a way that has not been the case for them up to then, makes them feel understood. Somebody catches on that this child does unusual things. He's not just an unloved or abused child. Something has happened. And while we don't need to necessarily look at brain scans to tell what it is, we're pretty sure that it's inside. It's inside affect, but it's also inside neurology. Um, and it may be permanent or it may not. Let's not go there but let's at least appreciate that this is big and this is special. And I wanted, to, I wanted to be specific enough in the introduction with some description of the literature and so on to let parents know I catch on, these children are special. Because I would imagine um, as we were speaking before, they often had seen other professionals or people that were maybe they thought would be helpful that didn't seem to be catching on. Yes. 
you know, the wonderful thing about the, the, there are many wonderful things about the research that's followed us, but one of them is that um, thank, thank, thanks to the PTSD research, particularly regarding uh, war veterans, we have begun to understand the transactional nature of early trauma. Parents often seem to get focused on, is this going to be permanent and uh, what can I do to stop it and so on? And it's really helpful to know that when, when an organism, any organism experiences something not only surprising early on, but something that threatens the organism's uh, uh, ability to survive, um, then that organism is going to change. Now, that does not mean that organism, that the change that that organism experiences is forever. But it does mean that, for example, if I experience the loss of my first three caregivers, first my mother, then that orphanage lady, then that other orphanage lady, then the lady that came with me to America on the plane, then the foster home I was in for a while, and now my, what, others think of as my very first foster slash adoptive home, who thinks she's my first mother, but is actually my seventh. If I've experienced that, then I may have, by the time I arrive on that dear mother's doorstep, already made a conclusion, which is attachment is stupid. By the way, I won't think that out cognitively the way I just said it, but closeness is stupid, holding is stupid, letting yourself feel soft is stupid, crying out for care is stupid. And so I will push away, potentially, I will push away that mom who thinks she's my first, but is actually my seventh. And as I push her away, she will change. And she will cry. And she will long for me. But her longing for me is so full of her own sorrow and maybe even shame, because lo and behold, my pushing her away makes her think that she's bad. And when she thinks she's bad, she'll actually think, not necessarily cognitively the way we think of thinking, but maybe that she will think this is God saying, ah, ah I remember all those things you did. I remember that abortion you had when you were younger. I remember the, the wicked ways that you've had in your life, now I'm going to pay you back. That that sounds to listeners of this podcast maybe to be insane is too bad because it's not insane. It's where we tend to go when, we, when shame is aroused and lo and behold, these little kids can arouse shame. Yes, and you, you, you speak to that exact issue in part of the film, um, which I think is, is, is so poignant when you do, in terms of not only are you struggling with this child and the behavior and whatever's in front of you, but they're arousing other overwhelmingly shame-inducing feelings in you to now also try to manage at the same time. And of course, the point of that whole monologue is to say that mother or that father is now a changed parent and may respond to the child differently, a change which may support the child's already present narratives about what he's made of, 
the child's behavior may therefore get worse or the the let's say the resistance to affection will get more intransigent and so now it's starting to look more permanent like even though it wasn't to start with am i am i being clear yes so i i've brought a pathology with me but it wasn't permanent but now it's starting to get that way because my environment has started to react to me because of what I brought into the, the new context. And now there's greater and greater risk each day that my narrative, my behavior, my affect will become rigid at least, if not permanent. Yes, because um, that internal working model is so strong that we're inducing it in other people. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, you know, that, that becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy. One author said that these children have the unique ability to walk into a home and a heart and a mind that is of the parents and at least make them think that he knows every rotten, dark secret they're keeping in their cellar. What a horrible feeling for the parent. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and not true at all, but it is felt to be true, and it sure does seem to be true. Yes, yes. So you say here, um, also in the preface, that you want to condense this into two main lessons before we actually get to the script perhaps a good time to talk about what those two main lessons are? Sure, and boy, are they unsophisticated, but big. Uh, they are simply, no family can do this alone. As I struggled in that first decade or so of working with families like this, I tried to figure out the difference between those who were making it. That is where, let's just say one measure, placement disruption. Who made it six months and who didn't? Who made it a year and who didn't? It's always tempting to look for all sorts of secret things about the quality or of uh, the parents and so on, but it may really boil down to some more simple things. Some parents entered the, this fray with lots of support around them. If not their own immediate family, then church, uh, God, um, other supports in their lives, an unusually compatible marriage, let's say, they were not trying to do it alone. And those families I noticed only um, anecdotally, I noticed seemed to be making it for longer and seemed to be more determined. Other families, every bit as smart and every bit as loving, but who either by virtue of their circumstance or virtue of the way they were built, tended to live life in more, at least, relatively speaking, more isolation. And, and they were very proud and determined, and they, and they more frequently failed. And the second thing I suggest is that uh, we ought to, without shame, be willing to say, this ain't for everybody. 
And by the way, I said often to family, so I'll say here, I'm one of those, it ain't four. I would love to say, yeah, I got the answer because I raised three of these kids and I made it to the other side. But the truth is, I'm not sure I've got what it would take to take one of these children into my home and even survive, much less have us all thrive. Mm -hmm. It's a very unusual, I won't say special, I'll just say unusual human being who, who lives in a world in which and has the wherewithal to allow them to uh, take in a child like this and, and keep the placement going. And maybe, maybe even leading to adoption. And so you're clearly also there saying, for listeners who don't know, you have adopted children, and what you're saying is it, it, these kids were not the type of kid that we're talking, your adopted children are not the type of child that you're talking about. And that's exactly yeah. right. Uh, you know, they were both adopted children. They both, they both also both came from divorce. So they, they were children I, who's, into whose lives I entered at age six and nine. And so they had lots of things going against them. But by comparison with these children, they were a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. my, my, the, the, our second child uh, that I, into whose life I entered at age six was, uh, has autism and a number of other disorders and lots of behavior problems and so on. And he lay in a, in a not very good foster home in Guatemala for about um, seven months, unattended to, too many children in the home. He brought lots with him, piece of cake. Piece of cake compared to these kids. Mm. I think there's some the parents, especially, but even also therapists out there, like, oh yeah, okay. Um, I've I've come across a couple of those kids that wow, this is like beyond you know what I've ever dealt with. <laughs> <clears throat> I should say, by the way, that um, in addition to the purpose of the film that I've already outlined, to be empathic with parents and to open some doors, uh, some mental doors and some doors of empathy for them, I also hope that this film would catch on as a discussion aid. Yes. Parents would come together and watch it and talk. Yes. Yes. I, I'm not so sure that has happened nationwide the way I hoped, but that's still one of its most greatest values because among other things, that decreases isolation. Yes, and you know, um, one of the things that Illinois has been so innovative in um, is post-adoption study. They don't then fund sometimes what the study says is needed, um, but Repeatedly, the, the good research that has gone on has said the number one thing that adoptive parents find supportive is being with and talking to and sharing with other adoptive parents. It is not that clever therapist. <laughs> that is the number one thing. So, well, even, let's... Even, even you. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, let's take a short break here, um, and then we're going to go um, into a part two where we're actually looking at the script for this, this video and talking about it. So we'll take a short break here. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future episodes. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please log on to tkcchattock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.